Our reading today is from Acts 16, starting at verse 11, onto verse 40, found on page 1112 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Acts 16, starting at verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, then immediately, he and his, all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. 
He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, that they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now they do want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you for reading that. And uh, we've got gremlins in the system with the uh, normal microphones. We're a little less Britney, a little more boy band uh, this evening, but I won't sing. Uh, so all is well. Uh, my name is Richard. If we haven't met, uh, it'd be lovely to do so over food a little later. But for now, shall we pray as we uh, come to the scriptures? Our Father, we've just read of Lydia that you opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And we pray that you would do that work again among us this evening. Uh, Lydia had to listen, Paul had to speak. You call us to do those things. And yet none of it is of any value if you don't open our hearts that we can hear the scriptures, that we can see Christ in them. And so please would you speak to us this evening. Please do open our hearts that we might respond in ways that honor you. Amen. We just had Acts uh, 16 read, not the sort of things that happen every day, at least not in my every day. Acts 16. Uh, next week, we're jumping ahead to Acts 20 in our sort of hop and a skip through Acts. And in between, in chapters 16 to 19, the big issue is, can you be a Christian and a loyal Roman citizen? So in those chapters, uh, four cities, four times, Paul's on trial in, in different settings, and four times the accusation, this Christianity that you're bringing, it's, it's not Roman. It upsets Roman values and Roman citizenship. We had uh, just one example in our reading uh, just now, verse uh, 21. The charge is, these men are Jews, they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The charge is, this message that Paul's bringing, it's, it's not Roman. You can't have it and be a loyal Roman citizen. Now, that issue may not have been keeping you up at nights this week. It hasn't been for me. So let's update it slightly. Can you be a Christian and hold British values in the 21st century? Is there a clash between a Christian faith and being a good citizen of modern Britain. And that's a tension that I guess many of us have felt. Some of us Christians have felt that from the inside. Some of us who aren't Christians sort of looking in think, yeah, that there's a tension there. I'll give you just one example. 
uh, Tim Farron a couple of years ago, uh, leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, felt that tension. Now, I'm aware this is a politically charged week, aren't they all at the moment? Uh, not a party comment in any way. I think what he's, we're about to hear him say would have been true working for any of the major parties. But he felt this tension between a Christian faith and a public role. Let me just read to you. Uh, two years ago, he resigned his leadership of the Liberal Democrats, and here's part of what he said. He said, the consequences of the focus on my faith is that I found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. A better, wiser person than me may have been able to deal with this more successfully, to have remained faithful to Christ while leading a political party in the current environment. But to be a political leader, especially of a progressive liberal party in 2017, and to live as a committed Christian, to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching, has felt impossible for me. Even in what he says, I think you feel that tension. Is it yes? Is it no? Can you hold these things together or can't you? He says, for me, it's felt impossible to do that. And at the time, there were plenty of people in all all kinds of areas of society who were saying, yes, someone who holds his faith shouldn't be in his public role. At the same time, I don't know if you heard in the middle of that, he very humbly, I think, he says, a better, wiser person than me may have been able to deal with this, may have been able to do it better. There's something in him that thinks you should be able to hold these things together, and yet I, I just couldn't quite. And so is it a yes? Is it a no? Can you be a Christian and a fully loyal citizen of this country? We'll get there uh, in a minute. Uh, First, we're going to look at Acts 16 and uh, see what's here, make sure we've understood it uh, rightly. Acts 16, uh, verse 11, we start at, from Troas. Uh, We put out to sea and sailed uh, straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So Philippi is where we are this chapter, and Luke says, Philippi, a Roman colony. It's a slightly surprising thing for him to say. Philippi was a Roman colony, but in Acts so far, we've been in two other Roman colonies, uh, Antioch and Troas, and Paul, uh, Luke sorry, hasn't bothered to mention that that's what they are. Yet suddenly we get to Philippi, and he says, oh, by the way, it's a Roman colony. Why? I think it's because he wants us to see that on this second missionary journey of Paul, Paul's further from home. He's in territory that's not Jewish, The conflicts with Jewish leaders that we saw last week are much less prominent. Far more prominent is what do the the secular authorities make of Paul and his message? What does Rome think of Christianity? And uh, I think we see a bit of that in this first story of Lydia. That's verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. Just a pause, a tangent, really. But you see the encouragement there uh, for those of us. As we've been following Paul, and as we do over the next few weeks, uh, Paul, the great evangelist, Paul who rocks up into a city and finds you know, the, the most public venue he can and speaks to hundreds and thousands, many of us think, well, I'm never going to do that. See what we did here? We sat down and began to speak. They chatted, which maybe a few more of us think, yeah, maybe I could do that. 
not going to talk about anymore now. Uh, we hosted uh, three weeks ago the Evangelism Conference, Randy Newman speaking exactly on that. Uh, the talks are online on our website, uh, well worth listening to. If you want to think more about how would I sit down with someone and just speak and chat about Jesus. Uh, but for us this evening, that's a tangent. Back on the main line, uh, here we go, verse uh, 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, I've been puzzling this week, why do we get this little story of Lydia? The main action, I mean, you can even see it how the, the headings are in our Bibles here. The main action of this story is uh, the trial and the prison, and the prison not quite break. We'll get there later. Why do we get this bit of Lydia? She's not involved in any of that. She just pops up again at the very end of the chapter. Why does Luke tell us about her? I, I think, I think it's to underscore again how far away Paul is from home. See, in every other city Paul visits in Acts, the first thing he does is head straight to the Jewish synagogue. That's where he'll meet people who are interested in the Old Testament scriptures. That's where he'll meet people that he can talk with about Jesus. But here in Philippi, there is no synagogue. To find people who might be interested in the scriptures, he has to leave the city, go down to the river, and find this small group of women there. This is just very different from anything we've seen Paul do for a while. I think we're meant to feel Paul is a long way from Jerusalem. He's in Roman territory. What are the Romans going to make of Paul? And we find out from verse 16. Once when we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. You see, the clash begins. You see the difference between uh, Paul and these uh, couple of men in Philippi. They are perfectly happen to, happy to use this woman for their profit. She's been oppressed once by this uh, demon. And then again by these men who say, aha, here's a way to make some money. Verse 16, she earned a great deal of money for them. But Paul won't do that. He could have used her, used her for free publicity. These men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. He could have slapped that all over his uh, promotional material, all over his social media. But he won't. Instead, he is annoyed, it says here, maybe slightly better, distressed at her situation, and so, in the powerful name of Jesus, he frees her. And the clash begins. Who is uh, the better citizen will be the question. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Who's the better citizen? One sentence into their sort of prosecution, if you want to put it like that, one sentence in, they've perjured themselves. You see, their claim is, we don't like these people advocating unlawful customs. 
we're here out of a sense of civic responsibility. It's not good for society. It's not good for the empire if these sort of teachings get around. And what's the reality? Verse 19. They realized the hope of making money was gone. That's really what excised them. All of the principles, all of the idealism, all of the civic mindedness, it was baloney. They just, there was self interest. And it might be the case today, more often than people would like to admit, that, that really what sounds like a principled, idealistic argument is self interest, just dressed up as something much grander. But uh, on this occasion, they carry the day. Paul and Silas are arrested, beaten, put in prison. And verse 25, we get to midnight. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. The rules of the day were, if you're a prison guard and your prisoners escape, you get their penalty. That's an incentive to make sure you lock the doors at night. You get their penalty. And so presumably in this prison there were people sentenced to death, and the jailer thinks, right, well, I better do the job myself. I might do it more mercifully than the authorities will when they get their hands on me. And as he's about to do it, verse 28, Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Who's the better citizen? Paul and Silas have every opportunity to escape. And yet they've been told by the authorities to sit in that prison, and so they do. Unjustly, they've been told it, but these are the people with authority, and Paul and Silas will submit to it. With every reason not to think how easy it would have been to justify. Why would God have set this earthquake if he didn't want us out? Surely it's better for the gospel that we leave here where you know we're already in trouble and go somewhere else. Somewhere they might listen to us. And we're put here unjustly anyway. Why should we listen to people who are who um just motivated by self-interest? And yet they stay. And astonishingly, verse 28 Don't harm yourself, we are all here. All of the prisoners. And the only way I can explain that is that in verse 25, all of the prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas. Somehow Paul and Silas have convinced this entire prison, let's stay put. Who's the better citizens? We'll jump ahead a little bit and get to the next day. Verse 35, when it was daylight... The magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas can be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. Oh dear. And threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, no, no. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens... They were alarmed. Alarmed is probably putting it lightly. Again, in the culture of the day, uh, Roman citizens were untouchable. Do what you like to a slave, no one really cares. To a, to a foreigner, no one really cares. But a Roman citizen, 
one of the chief jobs of these magistrates was to make sure that they were treated well. And in this case, without a trial, without any due process, without even asking the question, they've had them beaten and stripped and thrown in prison. Who's the better citizen in this story? Those who uh, tell lies just to get uh, uh, someone who's taken some of their money thrown in prison? Those who don't do their basic job, the magistrates who won't even bother to ask, by the way, should we just check? Check your paperwork? Or Paul and Silas, who for the crime of freeing a woman from oppression have been thrown in prison and been willing to stay there even when there was a chance to, to leg it. Who's the better citizen? And verse 39, you get the official verdict. They came to appease them. They escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. There's now this public, visual demonstration that Paul and Silas, they're in the right. The magistrates have come, have walked them out of the prison. Those who see it will tell everyone else. Very soon the city will know that Paul and Silas have been officially declared they're all right. They did nothing wrong. And so verse 40, they go back to uh, the little church in Lydia's house. It's still gathering of brothers and sisters. They encourage them and then head on uh, for ministry in Thessalonica. And if you read the next three chapters, 17, 18, 19, the same thing happens in each one. There's some kind of a charge against them. Very often you see it's, it's motivated actually by money. And the court decides, no, they've done nothing wrong. And not just, yeah, they're sort of technically they've done nothing wrong. But time and again, you see that Paul and his companions are better citizens. Because it's those who oppose them who want them arrested, who want them beaten, they're the ones who descend into into mob rule, who descend into violence, who lie. Luke wants Theophilus, who he first wrote this to, Luke wants us to know you can be a Christian and a Roman citizen. In fact, certainly in these instances, Christians are the better citizens. At which point, I imagine, some of us are wondering, okay, That was 2,000 years ago. What about now? Because there's a story that's pretty common in our culture, which goes a little bit like this. Uh, Once upon a time, everyone was Christians, and it wasn't great. There was this thing called the Dark Ages, bit of a downer. And then uh, we had the Enlightenment. And people started reading these old Roman and Greek texts, these kind of virtuous civilizations, and we learned again how to be more like the Romans and the Greeks and have democracy and values and... And that sort of freed us from Christianity. And so maybe back then the Christians were a bit better than these sort of Philippian brutes. But, but now that we've made so much progress and Christianity has stayed the same, it's, it's regressive. It's going to hold us back. It's going to make us worse. I don't know if you've heard a, a version of that story. It's a pretty common one. I'm just not sure it's true. Uh, Tom Holland, I don't know if you've come across uh, him. It's one of these sort of uh, popular historian writers, eight books published, uh, three BBC documentaries. It's obviously sort of smart and good-looking to, to, uh, to land that gig. Uh, but Tom Holland, uh, Tom Holland, New Statesman, three years ago, Tom Holland wrote, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. And he says, I grew up believing that story. Christians, bad, dark ages, enlightenment, good, Greek-Roman values, well done, we're, we're much better now. But I'm a historian, and I started looking into those ancient societies, and realized, no, 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 they're pretty ugly. 
not sure if you can see it, the subtitle there, it took me a long time to realize my morals are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, Holland, sort of theologically, not a Christian, but he would say, morally, he is Christian. He'd go so far, this was earlier this year in The Spectator, thank God for Western values. And he means that literally. He means that Western values, the things that most of us would, would assume, would have grown up with, it never even had to be taught because we just sort of pick them up. They're so instilled in our culture. They came from God. Thank God for Western values. And even more specifically, if you read his articles, or uh, Dominion just published this year is his book on this thesis, if you want to get into the details some more. Specifically, he thinks it's Jesus' death on a cross that has given us those values. Let me give you two examples. Well, here's two examples. He uh, talks about these two values. Uh, that it is more noble to suffer than to inflict suffering, and that every human life is of equal value. Uh, just uh, coincidentally, it seems to me, those are the two values Paul displays in Acts 16. He meets this woman. She's oppressed. She's weak. She's vulnerable. He says, no, she is worth life and freedom. No one else thought that. They were happy to oppress her. And then that it's more noble to suffer than to inflict suffering. Paul could have legged it from the prisoner, from the prison. Bye-bye, prison guard. You can have it in the neck. But no, he will stay. He will suffer rather than cause someone else to. Those values, says Tom Holland, they aren't Greek and they aren't Roman and they aren't from any other civilization. They come from Jesus. And his death on a cross, remember Holland, no Christian, but just saying the history of ethics, his death on a cross and people's reflection on that transformed moral values. And Paul would say the same thing. Fifteen years or so after this incident, he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. It was Philippians. We can see it in the New Testament. And among other things, he says this, consider others more significant than yourselves. And what's the next sentence? Have the same mindset as that of Jesus Christ. Paul says, where did I learn to value others? It was from Jesus. Where did Paul learn to value the weakest? Wasn't it from Jesus who said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many? Jesus' death on a cross transforms the way Paul thinks about the people around him, the weakest. And where did Paul learn to, to be willing to suffer rather than inflict suffering on others? Wasn't it the death of Jesus? As Jesus hung on a cross and said, at any moment I could call my father's angels and I'd be rescued from this suffering, but then it would fall on others. Who on the cross cried, prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It is Jesus' death and reflection on it that transformed the way that Paul related to a slave girl in Philippi, a jailer in Philippi. And Tom Holland would say, it's Jesus' death on a cross that has transformed the way Western ethics look. And so if those are values, valuing the weak, being more willing to suffer than inflict suffering, if those are values that feel like they're lacking a little in our culture at the moment, Tom Holland would say, more significantly, the Bible would say, it is only in Jesus that you find them, that you can have them. 
They don't come from some lofty ideal civilizations of the past. It is Jesus' death on a cross which taught men and women to think that way. And so Christians should be better citizens. Because the Western values that our culture loves came from Jesus. As we finish, though, it might go the other way. It did for Paul. Even though the verdict again and again and again is that he's a better citizen, the the accusation comes again and again and again that he's worse, that he's insidious, that he's dangerous. And things might change in this culture. There might come a point where you have to choose of which kingdom will I be a citizen, this one or Jesus'. If you lived in a country like North Korea, where to be a citizen is to worship the Kim family, it's possible that a, a human government would say, you just have to choose. And Acts 16 would say at that point, even at that point, it's worth it. What were Paul and Silas doing in prison? They were singing. Even in prison, because they knew a Jesus who'd loved them and died for them. I mentioned uh, Tim Farron's resignation speech two years ago. This is, this is the last uh, paragraph of that speech. He's talked about uh, his hopes for the future of the country, of his party. I want to say one more thing. I joined our party when I was 16. It's in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, It would have to be something so amazing, so divine. It demands my heart, my life, my all. Tim Farron, you've said you can't work out how to do both. You can't work out how to be a political leader and to be faithful to Christ. Will you give that up? Is Jesus worth giving that up for? Tim would say yes. Paul, everywhere you go, you're accused of being no good. You're thrown in prison. You're beaten. Is Jesus worth that? Paul would say, yes, and I can sing. Holy Trinity, Jesus should make us better citizens. When we're worse, it's our fault, not his. But when the accusations come, when the sneering comes, when words like regressive and bigoted come... Is it worth it to have Jesus? It is. Because in him there is a love so amazing, so divine, that he would die for you, for me. Should we pray together? Our Father, there are a thousand things you have given us uh, in Jesus Christ. And uh, our blessings far greater than the transformations that you brought to civilization. But what a thing that is. Uh, That in his life, in his teaching, but supremely in his death, you have shown us how to live for others, how to serve others, how to value others more significantly than ourselves. Father, we thank you for that gift. And we pray for those of us who are Christians, that you would teach us more and more, more deeply, 
uh, to imitate him, to be willing uh, to take up a cross and die to our own uh, desires, willing to serve others. And so please, whatever uh, other people see or say, would you uh, make us uh, good uh, for the country that you've placed us in? Uh, Would it be better uh, for our presence here because of your Spirit's work uh, through us and in us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.